Well, the title of tonight's message is going to be Rescue Me, Lord. Rescue Me, Lord. And as I was thinking about the title, of course, it's what I thought the primary theme of Psalm chapter 6 was. And so that's where the title comes from. I, I think as we look at it, you'll see that come out as we go through these 10 verses here tonight, Lord willing. But when you think about rescue me, Lord, and I have an exclamation point at the end of it because there's this desperate cry for rescue that David is lifting up to the Lord. And the walk of faith involves looking to the Lord. It involves looking up. And that brought, was come out, came out very clearly in Psalm, chapter, Psalm number 5 that we looked at recently last Wednesday. That, that concept of as you're facing adversity, there's only one place to go with that, and that's to go vertical, to look up, to look to the Lord. It's impossible to live a life of faith apart from a mentality that is fixed on the Lord. And as you think about looking up, the only way that you're going to do that or fix your mind or fix your gaze on the Lord, operate from a place of dependence, is if you have that representative attitude. If you have an attitude of dependence that says, without you, I'm hopeless. Without you, I can do nothing. But as I look to you and allow you to work in my life to work through me, then I can live a life that would bring you honor and glory. There's a lot of humility in that attitude. Just the posture of looking up and casting our cares on the Lord, directing our gaze at Him with that mindset of dependence, it comes from a place of seeing that He is everything and we have nothing to offer Him other than a response of faith to His plan and direction for our lives. So there's sort of this idea where if you're, if you're going to have this mentality of rescue me, Lord, it's because you're saying something in essence or similar to this. I look to you, Lord, because I recognize my helplessness apart from you. That is the posture that we see with both Psalm 5 and now Psalm 6. We're going to see that continued here, this cry for mercy or for help or rescue on the part of David. Now, unfortunately, although that's the mindset we, we ought to have as men and women of faith where we're saying daily, I recognize my helplessness apart from you, so I'm going to look to you, Lord. I'm going to trust you, Lord, because I see that I need you. Unfortunately, though, we're easily distracted. We're easily confused. Believers easily revert to a horizontal mindset, a temporal focus, where we're consumed by the circumstances going on around us, the people that are, going, that are around us or in our proximity, the way that they're affecting us, the affairs of life get in the way. Sometimes we're confused about even who we are. We start to lose our identity. We start to lose our first love where we don't have our priorities straight. Our priorities start getting out of alignment where God isn't taking a place of preeminence in our life as he ought to. Now when that happens, our gaze shifts. So instead of looking to him and seeing our helplessness apart from him, we start to look at the problems, look at the circumstances, and then because we're not looking at him, we start to seek human solutions to the problems that we face in our lives. And when that's the case, and we're being honest, we get to a place of utter desperation because we see that we're really not in control. We really have no fix or solution to the difficulties that life brings our way. So we get to a place where we're distraught. And God stresses the importance of the believer reading his gaze back on him when he faces 
the distressing things in life. In fact, God uses, though we'll get to this in a, in a, in a moment, God doesn't necessarily create the trials and the circumstances and all of the distresses that we face in life, but he uses them to get the believer's gaze back to him, to get us looking back to him, to coming back to this attitude and posture that he absolutely wants us to have, which is, I recognize my helplessness apart from you, so I look up, Lord. I look to you. I cry out to you. And David illustrates this process taking place in Psalm 6 in his own life. So let's take a look at that. If you haven't turned there already, Psalm 6 is where we're at tonight. Now in this series, Insights from Psalms, we're not necessarily going to be going through each psalm, but so far we've we've touched on the first five and we're going to go into Psalm 6 here. I don't know what the, the future brings, but as I read through and studied Psalm 6 here, I thought this was an important reminder for us. Rescue me, Lord. Let's read the, the psalm in its context. We have that fresh in our mind before we break it down. Psalm 6, 1, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. So there's the psalm. We'll break it apart. This first section here now, as we dig in deeper, I just have labeled life can be overwhelming. Life can be overwhelming. Let's look at these first three verses. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? And that's not as clear as it could be. It becomes more clear as you look at verses 6 and 7 and you add them contextually to what we're reading about in terms of the circumstances or the context, if you will, that David is speaking about or speaking to as he writes this bit of poetry. But as you just look at one through three without that additional context, you, it's a little bit challenging. One of the things that I want to bring out first when I think about life can be overwhelming, though, is that the root cause of trials in life is often unknown. We're going to see here that David has a perspective that may or may not be accurate, as to what is the cause of his trials. See, some trials represent God's discipline. And God's chastening, of course, is intended to correct, not harm or punish us. So you have a sense there, especially in the first verse, of the sense that David has a perception that these circumstances or trials or circumstances that are making him distraught or are causing him agony, that those are a result of God's chastening or God's discipline in his life. But the reality is that when you think about overwhelming circumstances in life, they're not all representative of God's discipline towards his children. 
Some trials are simply a part of life in a sin-cursed world. And I think we're not, I don't, we don't recognize that or see that for what it is often enough. Just being, there are distinct consequences associated with man's free will, which God sovereignly allows but does not orchestrate. And so as man is allowed to have free will, though God is ultimately in control, to say God is in control in response to something that is clearly the result of man's sinful choices is a little bit unhelpful in those circumstances. Yes, God is in control in the sense that he can use those circumstances for the believer's good, but it almost has the feeling as people say that sometimes that God is the one who is making this happen or God is behind this. And very often that's not the case. As we live in a crooked and perverse world that is tainted completely, not just a little bit, but tainted completely by the effect of sin and the curse of sin. You see, God is not the author of evil or the human suffering associated with sinfulness. Human suffering is evidence that we live in a broken and hostile world distinct from God's original perfect design. God didn't design life to be as it is. But with the taint of sin, the effects of sinfulness, the consequence of those choices, those free will choices by man, that is the result that has come from it. There's a great deal of evil and suffering that the child of God faces while he travels through this life. And not everything that he encounters that vexes his soul or that causes him to be in a place of anxiety or, or agitation is the result of God chastening him. So you think about it from a perspective of to say with Joseph that you intended to harm me or you meant what you did for evil but God worked it together for good that's far different from saying that God creates evil in order to accomplish good ends. God doesn't create evil. He's not the author of chaos or sin. To say with Paul that in all things God works together for good for those who love him who have been called according to purpose is to affirm that evil does not have the upper hand, but that God can reshape any evil we experience in order to bring forth good. But it's not to be confused with this perception that God is the author or is the originator of all of these troubles and adversities that, come, that we face in life or come across our, our way in life as a result of evil or as a result of the consequences of sin. Now, David seems to believe that God is disciplining him just with the language that he uses here. But as you think about it or consider it more, David does not reveal or perhaps even understand why that would be or why these things are happening to him. Now remember, you can read about this in other places, but there is, there's a natural tendency to associate negativity or things that are negative with a person's own sinfulness to always associate it with God's discipline, that the Jewish people were known for that. Even the religious people of Jesus' day, when a, person, when a person had an infirmity, their daughter actually had the infirmity, they naturally would associate that infirmity, physical, physical ailment, with somebody's sinfulness. And they asked Jesus, is the injury or the, or the infirmity that this, I think it was a girl has, was that because of her sin or the parent's sin. And so was that, there was that natural sort of permeated thinking that went through 
or at least had grown over time where there was an association then between some of these physical attributes or challenges or or facing adversity that was always directly tied to your own your own sinfulness or a consequence of sin. Now, remember in the context that we're dealing with a mosaic covenant, an agreement between the nation of Israel and God that specifically said, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. And if you don't obey me, there'll be consequences for that rejection or rebellion against me. Now, consequences in the temporal realm, both physical and spiritual consequences associated with obedience. And so there's a reason for this mindset. But as you start to read about some of the things that David is facing as we go through the rest of this psalm, it's hard to attribute it specifically to God disciplining him or some specific sin in his life because he doesn't mention it or identify it at all. But that seems to be his perspective. Probably spent more time on that than we, than we had to. But regardless of the cause for the adversity or the circumstances or the trials that David was facing, David cries to the Lord for deliverance. So on one hand, he seems to see the Lord as potentially a source of the trials or the adversity that he's facing. But on the other hand, he also sees God as the solution to the problems that he's facing or the difficulties that he's facing. So he cries to the Lord for deliverance. And you see that in verse 2. He says, have mercy on me, O Lord. Have mercy on me, O Lord. And have mercy can be substituted with have compassion or be gracious to me, O Lord. Other translations translate it that way. Have compassion on me or be gracious to me, O Lord. And this mindset recognizes that God's loving intervention, restoration, or rescue is entirely undeserved. And that's a mindset that is easy to overlook. That's not a mindset produced by humility. The one who's not humble or who is proud believes that God owes him something, that he's entitled to some kind of response that is favorable by God on his behalf. Only the humble one can come to a place where they say, Lord, it's only in your mercy. It's your tender, loving kindness and compassion for me, your graciousness towards me. So you could, you could simplify it. It's a prayer for grace. It's a prayer for God's grace to be applied to the circumstances and trials and adversity that David is going through. But God wants to get your attention. That's the underlying idea here. As David cries out to the Lord for deliverance, God always intends the, the results of trials in your life to be that you would turn to him, that you would get your eyes back on him, to get your attention. And as you think about the proud spirit, a proud spirit is equal to or it's equivalent to having an independent spirit. The one who's independent, independent thinks he doesn't need God. That in and of itself is a byproduct of pride. So the independent-minded person resists crying out for help to the Lord at all. The independent-minded, prideful person isn't having a posture where they can see, Lord, I need you, just like we sung here, sang here tonight. Lord, I need you all of the time is what, if you were going to summarize the song, it's not, it's not just when things are bad, but when things are good too. I need you all of the time, Lord. And so that's the attitude or the spirit that you see in David, which is very humble as he cries out for gracious, compassionate response from God or mercy from the Lord, even though he doesn't have any illusion or 
mentality that thinks I deserve this or God owes me this in some way. But you see, as David cries out to the Lord, we look at verse 3, it's the, or it starts with verse 2b and goes into verse 3, we see that David was completely worn out. He came to a place where he saw a need for the Lord's intervention on his behalf, and it's because life got really ugly. Life had gotten to the point where he was really worn down, where there wasn't much gas left in the tank, so to speak. And as you see this description here, starting with verse 2b, you can really get a sense of just how tired out and how desperate David has gotten. This is physically, emotionally, spiritually worn out. He says, I am weak. He starts with that as sort of a general summary of weariness, fatigue, and suffering that he's going through. The ESV translation, I think, has it even more vivid than that. It says, I am languishing. I'm languishing. That's kind of a fun word. Just start using that in your daily lives. I'm languishing. I'm worn out. I'm fatigued. I've come to my last gasps of air, so to speak. I'm out of resources. And that's what I love about even some of the songs that we sing. I repeat some of them over and over again. But of course, the famous hymn of the faith says when we have exhausted our hoarded resources the father's full giving has only begun we have to come to a place where we've exhausted all self-help plans all self-help efforts and we see lord i desperately need you rescue me lord and that's where david has gotten to here now listen to these next two phrases my bones are troubled And then he says, and my soul is greatly troubled. See, beyond any physical aspect to the suffering, the emphasis here is internal, both phrases. See, the psalmist uses these phrases primarily as a description of the internal anguish and agony he is experiencing. Now, some take a little bit different take on that. They say that the bones are troubled part of it refers to physical suffering that David is going through. But I I don't see that. The bones are troubled and my soul is greatly troubled has a sense that is really internally focused. That's, that would be my take on it. And troubled refers to an internal feel, fear that has taken root that threatens to undo the psalmist. It's shaken him up. He's in a place of utter desperation is another way to paraphrase that. And as I was thinking about this idea of being in that kind of a place where you'd say, I'm weak, I'm languishing, I'm weary, I'm fatigued, I'm to the end of myself in terms of my suffering. My bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. He reminded me of a song called Worn that an artist, a band named 10th Avenue North has. But the lyrics to that song, and you think about, could, can people really get to this place? I'm sure you could relate to what David is saying here to some extent. I'm greatly troubled. I'm languishing. I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. But the lyrics to the song say, I'm tired. I'm worn. My heart is heavy from the work it takes to keep on breathing. I've made mistakes. I've let my hope fail. My soul feels crushed by the weight of this world. 
I think that's a modern paraphrase of exactly what David is saying. My soul feels crushed by the weight of this world. And can the world feel that way? Can life feel that way at times? Does, does being a man or woman of faith make you immune from places of desperation, being knocked to the ground, being dropped to your knees by things you weren't anticipating? And of course the answer is no. God didn't say you'd be spared from that. He, he didn't say you'd skip across all of the brutally hard things that a sin-cursed world brings about the trials that you bring on yourself from your own choices, the effects of other people's choices on your life as you watch your children make choices that are gut-wrenching and you have to stand by, hopeless to do anything about it, as you see people who are ravaged by diseases that have no cure, that there's no answer, there's no solution in this temporal realm to it, as you see people that are violated and abused and misused, in many different ways where there's no justice in it, there's no sense of an end to it? Can't you get to a place where you say, my soul feels crushed by the weight of this world? I would say if you're not concerned about what's going on around you, if you don't have compassion for people, if you don't have a heart for the suffering that others are going through, maybe you'll never experience that. But the reality is that life throws curveballs at everybody in one way, shape, or form, and there's hardly anybody who couldn't say, I've been there. I've been to a place where I was absolutely, the air was knocked out of me. And I was gasping for air. That's where David's at. And I think that's what makes this psalm so relatable because this life is like that at times. The question is, how are you going to respond to those times in life where you feel that way? When you're experiencing things that are absolutely overwhelming to you. Well, David knows that restoration and rescue depend on God responding to the circumstances, not himself. You see that in verse 3b. He says, but you, O Lord, how long? But you, O Lord, how long? And the idea there is, how much longer will you wait to intervene, Lord? I'm in a place of desperation. My soul is crushed here, God. I've come to a place of utter exhaustion and defeat. How long are you going to wait to rescue me or intervene, Lord. See, having described graphically the terror and disintegration brought on by extended suffering, this breakdown of his whole person, David realizes the only hope for healing is the gracious action of God. But at the same time, David voices frustration with the perceived delay in God's response. So on one hand, he turns to the right object. He turns to the Lord in his place of despair. On the other hand, There's this subtle element of accusation to God that's directed toward God. Like, how long are you going to wait to intervene, Lord? And have you been there before? Were you in a place of frustration? You were in a place of desperation? You were in a place of absolute fatigue? You were languishing? And you cried out to the Lord? And then you thought, What's taking so long? (laughs) Where is your answer, Lord? Where's the response? Where's the rescue? Where's the restoration that I'm desperately seeking and needing? And that's where David was at too, something that ought to be quite relatable. See, God is able to save. He is the psalmist's only hope. 
And yet he continues to delay his response to David's cries. Very relatable. And as I was thinking about that, I couldn't help but just be reminded that God's timing is not our timing. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's wisdom is not man's wisdom. Faith involves trusting God with what we cannot see or understand, including his timing in his responses to our anguish. How he handles or how he intervenes, how he saves. We know that he's the only one who can rescue and save and restore. He's the only one who can intervene or fix any of what we're going through, both on a physical level at times and also always on a spiritual level. He's the only one who can do it but also on a psychological level, an emotional level. We know that God is the solution, but he doesn't always respond the way we expect him to or want him to. He doesn't do it as quickly as we think he should at times. And that's a hard lesson to learn. But that's what David's talking about here in verse 3b, as we see, but you, O Lord, how long? And then a question mark. Now, he continues that thought with a renewed sense of Rescue me, Lord, that he brings out in verses 4 and 5. So he's saying, I'm waiting, Lord, and he cries out again. He repeats this idea that, Lord, I've cried out to you before. That's implied. It's not stated directly. The reason it's implied is because he's saying, why haven't you delivered me yet? There's a sense there that he's already brought this to the Lord. But he says, return, O Lord. Again, he's associating God's Discipline as the cause or the source for the delayed response or intervention or rescue on the part of God. Now, again, whether that was accurate or not, we don't know. But he's saying, return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? So David boldly cries out to the Lord, Father, I need you right now. And some of you who are parents, you've experienced that before. Where your child had asked you to help them with something, but you were doing something else. So you didn't respond in the timing that the child was hoping for or wanted. And isn't it true that in a place of frustration, a child can renew their cry for assistance in a way that almost almost can seem demanding at times? Dad, I need you right now. And there's a sense there, as you see the personal relationship that David has with his God that is revealed through the Psalms. That's why he can be referred to as a man after God's own heart because he had this intimacy, this understanding that God was very real, that God was very intimate, that God was very personal. And you can see that in the way he talks to the Lord. Now, it's not always a model of how we should be thinking. It doesn't even always mean that David was right about how he was approaching things. But he comes back again and he says, Lord, rescue me, deliver me, I need you right now. And that word deliver me is interchangeable with rescue or save me. And you see that there in verse 4, he says, deliver me. And then he says, oh, save me. There's redundancy there. But David understands that God's love for him is what will motivate God's response because he says, for your mercy's sake. And that refers to God's steadfast and faithful love. And as I've said many times, other translations consistently translate mercy as God's tender loving kindness, steadfast love, uh, faithful love. 
Steadfast and faithful love, tender loving kindness is something that is another definition that I've heard before. So there's so much more to this idea of mercy than God withholding some kind of judgment that we deserve. And very often, that's how we sort of minimize that concept of what the word means, but it's so much more than that. He says, save me for your mercy's sake. And if you have a New King James translation like I'm reading here, there's an exclamation point at the end of it. The idea is that because that's the kind of God you are, because you care so much about me, because of your steadfast and fast and faithful love, not in general. Again, note the personal aspect of this communication. This is all voiced as a prayer to God. A prayer, God, be gracious to me. But it's all, it's all couched in a sense that David understands that God would never do that but for his love and concern for David to begin with. And you know that David doesn't say, save me or rescue me or deliver me because I deserve it. He says, save me or help me or rescue me, Daddy, because you love me so much. See, some people, they just struggle with that no matter how much you talk about it. That the thing that starts or drives the whole faith walk or the faith relationship with the God of the universe is his desperate love for us. He is many things. He's faithful. He's eternal. He's truth. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. He's all-powerful. He's just. He's fair. But none of those things, none of those attributes would cause him to take notice of man or have any concern for man. It's God's love that causes him to have an interest and a care and a concern and a compassion for mankind. So it begins there. And naturally then, your relationship with him in a familial setting, if you see yourself as God's child, as his son, it's going to be couched in or colored by or defined by, first and foremost, his great love for you. So when you cry out for help and you say, Lord, rescue me, there's a very paternal, personal sense to that that is absolutely lost if you don't see God that way. In any event, we, we move forward. As you look at this, this, this desperation, this idea that I don't deserve this, but God, you're going to, I know that you'll do this anyway because I know how much you love me. Then we go to verse 5, which is kind of a confusing verse. But in verse 5 it says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? Now, this is another reference to the, the depth of the despair that David faces. Why? Because he's basically saying, I'm on death's doorstep. There's, there's no time left to delay in your rescue or deliverance or salvation, Lord, because I'm at the point of death. That's how close I feel in, in, in the amount of agony and despair that I'm facing with my circumstances, trials, whatever the circumstances are that David is describing there in verses 2b through 3. So he, now he says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave who will give you thanks? It just it reinforces how he believes that death is imminent unless God rescues him. Now this isn't saying that David believes death is the end of his relationship with God. That's not what it means. But rather it means that his ability to praise God to others will have ended in the sense that 
he sees himself as an ambassador, a spokesperson for God's goodness. And he's saying, how could I do that? How could I lift up praise to you in a way that would impact others if I'm dead? So that's, that's the takeaway, at least from my perspective. That's what he's referring to there. As long as there is still life to live, the takeaway for you from that should be there is still time to praise the Creator. The God that loves you desperately, there's time to exalt Him and lift Him up and praise Him, put the spotlight on Him, try to be a reflection of Him, not through your own strength, but keeping your focus on Him, being excited about Him, being in awe of Him. And as you have an awe for Him and you see His great love for you and He works in and through you, He will cause you to be a light for Him, a reflection for Him. So that His love and His qualities and attributes could be known or could be experienced through your testimony or example as he works in you. And so that's the idea or takeaway there from verse 5. Now you move on to verse 6 and 7 and you see the depth of despair that David is talking about. It's amplified or continued from what he said in verse 2b and verse 3. So he had said, I'm weak. My bones are troubled. I need healing. My soul is greatly troubled. Now, jump down here because he's going to pick it up. Verse 6, he says, I'm weary and I'm worn. He now vividly and expressively describes the extent of his distress. We have, I'm weary from groaning. Then we have this phrase, all night I make my bed swim. Next we have, I drench my couch with my tears. Next we have, my eyes waste my eye wastes away because of grief it grows old because of all of my enemies and you think man could you get more descriptive than that is that pretty vivid is that a pretty expressive way to talk about being weary and worn being at the end having nothing left in the tank being desperate being in a place of complete and utter helplessness. I mean, think of, look at these phrases. I'm weary from groaning. Imagine being in a place like that. Now, some of you perhaps know somebody who has such a bad medical condition that they're in utter agony and desperate pain all the time. Imagine how, if you're not living that way, how difficult that must be to be weary from groaning all the time. Now, this is my favorite. All night I make my bed swim. What do you think that means? All night I make my bed swim. Now, there's different opinions about it. You know the first thing that came to my mind? I just imagined fitful tossing and turning. Wouldn't that seem like the bed is swimming if you were looking at it and you couldn't sleep well? because you were so full of anxiety and fear and anguish and stress that you're tossing and turning all night long? Now, others take the position that, I may, that this refers to crying, being in such grief. Obviously, these are all just metaphors, not, liter- not to be taken literally, but crying so much that your bed is awash with tears. I don't actually think that's probably it because the next statement, I drenched my couch with tears, seems redundant to me if that's also what I, at all night I make my bed swim means. 
But either way, this is pretty graphic. I drenched my couch with tears. And then this last phrase, a little bit of disagreement about what that makes means too, to say my eye, verse 7, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all of my enemies. My take on that, and it's supported by a number of others, is that this just means my eyes or my vision is blurred by tears. That that's what my eye wastes away because of grief. My, I, my eyes are wearing out from all the crying I'm doing. I can't actually personally relate to a description like this. Not in its entirety. Not if you put them all together. I can relate at times in my life to different aspects of this for different periods of time. But imagine cumulatively taking all of these things and putting them together to describe the place that you're at. Quite a hard place to be in. And he says that the cause of all of this agony and distress is all my enemies, all my enemies. That's why I'm not so dogmatic about the discipline aspect of verse 1, the rebuke and chastening. I'm not, I'm not sure what David understands as the cause of his distress. Because here, he clearly seems to identify the cause of his distress as his enemies. Certainly, God isn't his enemy. Now, if God is allowing, if his perspective is that God is allowing his enemies to cause him affliction because of something that he's done or as a form of discipline, that's perhaps the takeaway there. I don't think it really is the emphasis of the psalm, though. The emphasis of the psalm is that when you're in this kind of a place, where are you going to go to? Where are you going to turn to? And the answer is the same as it was in Psalm 5. You're going to look up. You're going to have to cry out to the Lord for his intervention, his rescue, his restoration. If in fact it is a place, if in fact it is referring to some sort of a separation that was caused between a person and the Lord as a result of their rebellion, rejection, or defiance of him. But we come to the end section here, verses 8 through 10, and we see my help is from you. Ultimately, regardless of why you're experiencing what you're experiencing, these difficulties in life that are so descriptively described there in verse 6 and 7, they're so vividly described, descriptively described. It's two words, the same word back to back, but so vividly described. We get to the solution to all of this. My help is from you. See, these verses mark a radical change in tone from this lament that we've been reading in verses 1 through 7 to the confidence. The tone is so much more confident now. It, the tone shifts from a tone of suffering to a tone, tone of joy or victory. There's an obvious renewal of strength as David boldly declares the victory and rescue that God will provide. He's been asking for it in the sense that he's crying out for rescue or to be saved in verse 4, deliver me. O Lord, rescue me, Lord, save me, Lord, for your tender loving kindness and love's sake towards me, because you care so much about me. And then he talks about how bad it's gotten. But now there's this tone of confidence and a tone of joy and a tone of victory that we see as David has this boldness now to say God is going to do this. Now, there's no way to know exactly what brought about that change. It doesn't really matter whether this change occurred later or immediately after David prayed. 
But David experienced peace and courage in his heart and mind after crying out to the Lord. Turning your gaze to the Lord alone, crying out to the Lord, being reminded of where the deliverance will come from, that in and of itself could give you confidence and joy and renewed strength. It could give you a sense of impending victory over whatever the adversaries were, whatever the enemies were, whatever the trials were that you were facing. That in and of itself. So you think about some possibilities here. Perhaps God answered in an obvious and observable way that included improved circumstances or relief from adversity. Some, perhaps as this is being sung as a song, being penned as a, as a, as a bit of poetry, it's not all happening in real time. And so perhaps that's what happened, is that after crying out to the Lord for deliverance and restating vividly just how bad things had gotten, God very obviously and observably, he undertook to provide that rescue for David. Or he answered in a way that gave David absolute confidence that he was going to intervene. We, we don't know, but there's a definite shift in tone here when you get to de- depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Is it because David saw something, he heard something about how the Lord had directly intervened? Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. Now, or perhaps word came to him that the enemy had retreated or better yet had been defeated and he knew that God had heard his cries. Or maybe his circumstances hadn't changed at all. But David, David's renewed focus on the Lord and his faithfulness changed his outlook even in the face of ongoing adversity. Now we don't know which it is. It could be any of those things. It ultimately doesn't matter because when you're faced with these kinds of circumstances where you're desperate, where you're in agony, where the wind has been knocked out of you, where you've been punched in the gut and you're crumbled to the floor on your knees, the solution is to cry out to the Lord for rescue, knowing that he not only hears, but he answers that he's capable of undertaking to provide you exactly what you need, even in the face of what you're going through. Now, sometimes that's going to involve God undertaking to improve the circumstances or to provide relief from the adversity in terms of taking it away. But in other times, it's going to involve the Lord reminding you that his, he'll never leave you or forsake you, that he's with you in the face of what you're going through, even without taking it away. He'll remind you that you're blessed even despite the hardships that you're facing. He'll remind you that he has a plan and a purpose for your life that has nothing to do with circumstances. He'll remind you that the story has a very happy, hopeful ending for every Christian, regardless of how hard it is in this life. And I would submit that more often than not, that's how God provides deliverance and rescue in these difficult times. Sometimes he undertakes to actually impact the circumstances themselves. But I think you can think back to some of the things you've gone through and seen that they didn't necessarily go away. 
They were things you had to deal with, with for the rest of your life. That God just gave you the ability to see his goodness, find his peace, have his comfort, even in the face of those trials and difficulty. You see, through the agony of suffering, the child of God can be confident that God will hear his cries, see his tears, and answer his prayers for deliverance, though not always in the way we imagined, expected, or desired from a human perspective. Is it wrong to desire the Lord to intervene in a very physical, temporal, human-based kind of a way? And the answer is no. And he perhaps will. But to restrict your joy and your peace and your contentment and your purpose and your happiness to God intervening by taking away the trial is to severely limit God. Because he says, I'm the kind of God who, regardless of the circumstance or the trial that you're facing, I can give you a life that is wonderful and joyful and filled with peace and filled with hope and is centered in and washed in and, in in a sense, completely covered by my great love for you. So we have our title, Rescue Me, Lord. Rescue Me, Lord. When you are worn out, overwhelmed, or in a place of anguish, anguish, cry out to the Lord. Remember his promises and trust him to provide and undertake. The Lord may not do what you ask when you want it, but he will provide what you need. All for your good and for his glory. Let's turn to Second Corinthians as we wind down tonight. There's two passages I want to share with you. Second Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're going to start. You see, because the Apostle Paul knew something about anguish. He, he knew something about distress. He knew something about being weary and worn. And he's speaking to other believers who in the early church knew much more about those kinds of persecuting trials that people would face for their faith than, than we ever will. But he says this. He says we are, verse, chapter 4, verse 8. He says we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. You see, the Christian's mentality, the man of faith's mentality, as he's facing hardships, as he's facing overwhelming odds, as he's in a place of absolute devastation in terms of the things and the circumstances that are going on around him, he sees that his peace and his joy and his purpose and his hope is not tied to those things. You see, God's loving grace will always be sufficient to meet whatever need you face regardless of the trial. Turn to chapter 12, and Paul takes a, very more, a much more personal approach to it where he talks about his own challenges, his own thorn in the flesh, his own adversity that he was facing that was obviously very impactful on him because he says that I had pleaded with the Lord three times 
to remove this trial from my life. He was in a place of agony. He was in a place of being exacerbated by, ex, yeah, exasperated by the circumstances he was facing. He knew what that was. And he cried out to the Lord. He did exactly what David is doing here. But what was God's answer? It sounds like in David's life, the answer was that God provided the rescue that he was looking for from his enemies. But in Paul's life, God's answer was, and he said to me, chapter 12, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in, insert your weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I see the benefit that that will have in my life, Paul says. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because in the face of even the most challenging circumstances that would have a tendency in our natural response to knock us to the ground and put us in a place where we're absolutely languishing, where our, tro our soul is greatly troubled, where we don't know where else to turn. In the face of that, when we look to the Lord, we can have direction and peace and hope and joy and purpose. None of it is tied to the circumstances themselves. The rescue is associated with turning to him and having him then renew your strength, having him renew your mind, and having him provide the comfort that only a God of all comfort could provide. So the question you should ask yourself when you get in a predicament like David found himself in, a, a place of desperation, the question you should ask isn't, when will I get out of this? The question should be, what can I get out of this? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for this time we could spend in Psalm 6. Thank you that your word is true, that we can find direction from it. Pray that you would allow us to take these truths and apply them to our lives, not through our own strength, but through your direction and leading, through your illumination as you work in our minds and our thinking and in our lives to direct us to live lives that would bring you honor and glory. Pray that we would want to lift you up, want to proclaim you, want to shine your light into the places that you bring us and into the lives of the people that you put us in contact with. Thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen.